Hello and welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. My name is Ben Wilson, I'm your host, and this podcast is all about human stories of spirituality. And there's no better guest to welcome onto the show with that topic in mind than today's guest, who is Bill Harder. Bill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast over Zoom and joining me today. And uh, for anyone who hasn't tuned in before, uh, Bill, uh, you've been on the, the podcast twice before, but it's been a little while, so welcome back. Yeah, good to be back. Thank you, Ben. So, Bill, you are the program coordinator at the Hospice Society of Camrose and District. We had to make sure to get that name right before going on the air. Um, but uh, you were just telling me before we started that you're going to be changing positions soon and uh, moving to a remote position with the Palliative Care Society of the Bow Valley. Uh, that's exciting. Uh, congratulations. And uh, what can you tell us a little bit about that uh, transition coming up for you? Yeah, so I have I have a couple of months to to walk with Camrose Hospice as I move out of this role and they reconsider what they need and slowly moving into uh, the Bow Valley position with Canmore. They were very kind to offer this position as a remote opportunity. I had first turned down a position that was meant to be on site uh, just because my wife and I aren't really quite ready to move away from this community yet. And they came back with the remote option and it's a world where remote works now. I'm really excited about the nuances this position has and it's a new, a new role for them. So like I did with Camrose Hospice, I get to help build programs from the ground up. And that's something I, I feel really excited about and, and it fits well in the wheelhouse of my soul gifts. Mm, that's really wonderful to hear that you're gonna be putting those gifts to use uh, in a exciting new place and a new way, uh, but obviously builds on all of the experience and skills that you've had uh, in the in the cameras community and doing the work that you do there. Um, so I'm fairly familiar with some of those programs that you've built from the ground up in cameras and the work you've done has impacted so many people. Uh, you've come to our community to Basha before as a speaker, uh, as a virtual speaker, uh, even recently. And um, so I have a sense of that footprint of your work and the impact that you have and the healing that you do. Um, but for, for listeners who are not familiar or maybe who haven't heard the episodes where you've come on the podcast before, what is, uh, I mean, I think really both the, in both your current role and your new role coming up, this idea of palliative care, of hospice care, of end of life care, um, why, why is it so meaningful for you or, or uh, it clearly it's your calling, I suppose. Hmm. Yeah. One of the reasons I came into this world and it took, it took a few decades, maybe the first four decades to begin to discern this is my soul is thirsty for stories and if I, if I had to say, there's what, what is my reason for being, it is that I collect stories. No matter what job I've ever had or relationships I've been in, at the very bottom of it was, I was thirsty for story. A palliative approach to care, and I would just, just as an aside, the idea of palliative care is that it is a, a mode of healing, like um, cardiac care, pulmonary care, chiropractic care, etc. So a person is never actually palliative. It's a misuse of the term. Uh, 
It would be like saying somebody's chiropractic. Yeah, I just <laughs> discovered today I'm chiropractic because my back's sore. <laughs> That's not really the intent of the word palliative. The word palliative means to wrap around or to cloak from the French. And it, it is a, a way of caring about somebody who has a life-limiting illness, a, a way of care that completely surrounds them with physical needs, emotional needs, psychological needs, soul needs. And there's lots of different contributors to a palliative approach to care. So clearly there would be a doctor and a palliative nurse consultant. Uh, but many, many other people might be drawn into that. Mm. And for me, that's a lot of stories. It's the story of the person who's being cared for. And what happens in their world when they get that diagnosis from their doctor that says, we can't cure this? Doesn't mean you're going to die soon. You might, you might live for 10 more years. And we will use the palliative approach to raise the quality of your life at every point or make your quality of life as high as possible. And that's an unfolding story for me, a story of, of fear and anxiety, of hope, of uncertainty, of wonderment. And also, ideally, as we surround somebody who has a life-limiting illness, which includes things like MS or organ disease, dementia, cancer, when we surround that person, we hear their story unfolding at each stage. And that's, a, that's to me, a, a beautiful way for me to be in the world, to be honored with sitting next to this story and bearing witness to it. And then maybe in my role here with hospice, mentoring other people in finding the ability to hold that space with somebody. And of course, the other side of that is that individual is going to die not simply because they have a life-limiting illness, but because the mortality rate is now 100% among human beings. That came out just not too many years ago, the uh, World Health Organization released that stat that the mortality rate had risen to 100%. That's frightening. <laughs> so we all die. And that means we need, we need to be able to hold the space afterwards for us who grieve for the sorrowing journey. And again, it is just so, so sweet, bittersweet even, to be able to be with people who have had somebody or something in their life torn away from them. Mm. And then to understand what does this mean? In this work, that's the summary for me. In this work I do with hospice, it is the collecting of those stories and just holding them. They are, they are precious to me. Wow. That's so beautifully said, Bill, and I, I love the way you describe that. It, for me, it really resonates because I consider myself a keeper of stories too, and mm -hmm. and not only through this podcast, but I as a as a filmmaker. Uh, for me, the the underlying why behind all of that is similar to yours. That I I treasure people's stories and not just making up stories, but but real true. Like this is what happened to this person. This is their part of their life journey and. And let me help you share that story. Like that's, it's such a, a treasured thing to, to behold and to, to have the opportunity to share those uh, because it's such a core. I mean, that's just, that's who we are. We are, we, we exist in story. And that's how you know, we, I think, carry on too, right? Like when you're working with people who are grieving, right away it, immediately it turns to the memories the stories the mm. the things that 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 person left behind 
is the impact that they had through their being here, the people they touched, and through the stories. Um, that's, that's so beautiful. So what, what I'd really like to, to focus our conversation on today, Bill, um, is related to that, and that is grieving as a community during a pandemic. I mean, when, when you were on before, we talked about uh, the grief journey. We talked about the process of grieving. You had some, some phenomenal uh, wisdom to share and advice for people who are grieving. Uh, and I encourage people to go back and listen to those uh, podcast episodes as well. And we can provide links to that in the, in the description here. But um, we're in different times now. Like we're, we're almost a year into, we basically are a year into this global pandemic. Many people have died. Um, not just from the virus, but we've had all kinds of, uh, in our community, just alone, and very recently, we've had some, some very difficult uh, tragedies that we're still grappling with and, and grieving as a community, grieving as individual families of those loved ones who have been lost. Um, I think that there's something very uniquely difficult, obviously, with uh, a death that is unexpected and tragic, and especially when uh, those people are are young and have their whole life ahead of them. Um, and so uh, three people that were uh, very recently grieving the loss of, uh, I think you're familiar with uh, Marge Woden, who passed away not long ago, um, way too young. Uh, and then mm. Sydney Hunter uh, tragically uh, passed away in a car accident at only the age of 20. And so we're we're just reeling. And then not long after that, we lost another uh, community member named Amanda, uh, who wasn't living here in Basha, but is still part of our community. And so those leave shockwaves through the community. And now we're in this time where we can't gather, we can't have a normal funeral, we can't get 200 people together and share some food together and share some of those stories. And so we're seeing ways that people are creatively um, sharing their grief together and connecting, but it's really not the same. And uh, I think we're struggling as a community. And I think that Basha is not unique in that. I mean, every community is continuing to, to lose loved ones to the virus, to other illnesses, to accidents, to all those uh, different uh, causes of death that there were, uh, that happened, right? So. I'm, I'm hoping we can, yeah, really kind of drill down into a little bit more specifically this this unique challenge that we're all in now that we face, and and now is just a really good time for that with with how uh, with how much pain we're feeling in our community. I think. Yeah, well, that's a lot. <laughs> it is. That's just a real lot, and and that perfectly states how our communities are are experiencing these times so there have always been tragic accidents unexpected deaths heart attacks strokes etc those are a part of humanity's journey and then we compound that hard work with this very very strange thing not novel because humanity's had pandemics in the past novel for our generation though and so we have to we treat it as if it's the first time ever, because it is for us. I want to start by unpacking the recent deaths. I had the privilege of being at the school 
to do some on-site work and virtual work with uh, Marge's death. And I'm going to the school this afternoon, actually, to meet with staff regarding Sydney's death and just, just holding space ritually for sorrow. A couple of things come to mind. Because of COVID and because of the restrictions in our ability to do communal ritual sorrowing, we have to be really creative. What's happened in the last couple of hundred years in, in our culture, this removal of death from us, this sanitizing of death, this is, this is a millisecond in humanity's history. Our ancestral history, our, what's in our DNA is a, a connection to ceremony and ritual and village that cannot be wiped out just by a couple of hundred years of experiences. So there's something really ancient in us that yearns for connection, yearns to make meaning of our experiences together. There's, I was reading a a newsletter from my favorite author, Francis Weller, who is a psychotherapist in the States and has done a ton of work around uh, ritual ceremony and in particular grief. He's, he's the grief, one of several grief gurus of our time. And he, he talks about doing soul psychoanalysis. That's, that's his gig. And he says, in his, in his perception, in his work with people and soul, he says, soul is not something private that's within us. Soul is, is primarily experienced in the other, in our connection with others and in the village. So we want to really understand our own soul, Weller would say. We need to understand it within the context of our village or clan, uh, the people around us. And that is where we discover what it is Another favorite uh, mentor of mine is, um, oh shoot, his name just jumped out of my head. It'll come in, in a moment. He speaks about soul gifts, this word I used earlier. And these two authors would speak to each other and acknowledge these soul gifts become expressed in the village as we interact, as we share with each other's lives. Now we have COVID, which separates us. And we come back to these ancient ways to which I allude. And we, we are finding ways to bring up those ancient ways again. And it isn't just COVID that had, had cut us off from these ancient ways of being with sorrow and grief. It was a culture that wanted to sanitize the idea of death. And so COVID just really focuses the lens to say, now more than ever, we need to rediscover what does ritual and ceremony look like? And how do we find meaning in loss? And how do we allow loss to once again be metamorphosis for us, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, as something that is truly deeply transformative? So one of the ways I'm observing this happening in our world is online funerals and online rituals, but not just simply somebody not a screen full of tiny little pictures. We're looking at, you know, 200 faces at a funeral and an officiant. But drawing each of those tiny little faces into physical ritual. 
And so I would say to you, Ben, uh, if you were one of those 200 faces and I'm guiding this, this experience, have I would say in an email to you before you log on, have ready with you a candle in front of you and a bowl of water and, and some matches as an example. And at some point in the ritual, I am lighting a candle and so are you because I've invited you as a participant because our, our, our need for these ancient ways is a physical thing. It's, it's the movements, and Weller actually talks about ancient movements. He studied that from another mentor. I forget who that was. But anyway, ancient movements, things our bodies have done for thousands of years, kneading bread, cutting wood, um, drawing back the string on a bow to shoot an arrow, things that are very, very old, like maybe tens of thousands of years old. And some of these ancient movements are needed in our grief ritual, which would be gathering around the fire. And so in this time right now with COVID, one of the things we need to do with our ritual is ensure that when we do it virtually, we're also doing it physically. Have a piece of paper and a pen and write down feelings and thoughts so that you're, you're physically touching and moving something. Have a bowl of water and, and let that be representative of your tears for all of your losses. And then have another receptacle and pour that into the other receptacle as everybody else does on the screen. And all of a sudden my tears are being moved into a place where all of yours are being moved to. If we were in one room together, we would literally pour our glass of water into a common receptacle as we move our tears together. But virtually we can still represent that and still be in touch with core elemental pieces. Oh, that's powerful. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I, I just want to pause there just to give listeners a breath. And also, as you're digesting this, what are your thoughts and questions as you hear this? Oh, I, I really appreciate that, that opportunity. Thank you for asking. One thing that keeps um, coming up for me, Bill, is I, I so appreciate what you're saying about um, that programming that we have that's in our DNA to, to repeat and carry on traditions and, and ritual and that, that we might not even be aware of, but the body knows, our, in, our soul knows. Um, and now we're in this era where for the last several generations, we've displaced a lot of that, we've changed a lot of those, we've disrupted a lot of those patterns. And we have just in the last 20 or 30 years, some really new technology that's just really uh, um, turned our world upside down even more, but also created opportunities. So what, one thing I'm really curious about is when you talk about, you know, uh, lighting a candle as symbolism for sitting around a fire as a, as a perfect example, um, we, using things like Zoom, we can gather and, and virtually and do that with hundreds of people. And even though, even if everyone else's video was turned off, but just knowing that there are a community of people who are also participating in this act with me in unison in their homes, but at the same time, and they're doing the same thing. And they, we have this shared intent. I truly know that there's power in that. And I've experienced that. And I've participated mm -hmm. in some, some Zoom funerals. There was one uh, for a woman very dear to me, uh, Monique Watson, that I actually was invited to lead the service, and I, which was way out of my depth, but it was an incredible experience. Um, and so I, I felt that even just on Sunday, 
mornings uh, with our church services going being online over the last year um you just singing a hymn and knowing that there's other people singing that same hymn at the same time in unison from their couch has power in it um but then i'm curious if on the flip side we also see things like you know you if you think of a a rock concert where everybody would pull out their lighter years ago and and wave their hand back and forth and yeah. <laughs> flame and now people just use their phone because people don't have lighters anymore because not as many people smoke and so you've seen just in my lifetime as and just in the last 20 years this weird shift where we've got led lights replacing flames we've got zoom replacing physical gatherings we've we've got this replacing Tra uh, transition kind of going on that changes it and maybe takes away some of the authenticity in, in some in some instances but also creates these new opportunities do you think that we are is, is technology helping us to um to keep some of the, that tradition that you're talking about alive or is it kind of weakening it or is it both hmm. i think that matches and a and a candle or a fire uh, outside with a ring of stones or lightning or um, sunlight are all essentially coming from the same energy. I think a fluorescent light and an incandescent light and the light from my cell phone and the light from my monitor I'm looking at right now all are all from primal energy, really, at, at essence. It's, it's wavelengths, and light's complex, right? It's, a, it's both a wave and, a, and a, what's the other piece? I forget. Well, it has false particle theory and also yeah. wave theory. That's right, yeah, right? I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's at the essence of our physical reality. Yeah. So these are just tools. I, I, I don't want us to get too caught up on really are we losing something because you use a cell phone instead of a, a lighter? And I, I, I'm so grateful that you bring that up because I think that question is, is, is being investigated. Instead, I would say, are we using whatever tool is best at our time to take us back to very ancient rhythms within us, healing rhythms, rhythms of life? Uh, I'm just going to take a quick sidebar and come back, but the sidebar I think is relevant for us. Sure. I had told a story. I don't know if I told it on the podcast or not um, of grandmother tree. And I, I won't take the time now, but this story given to me from the tree that's just outside my office, a great big humongous cotton poplar and walking by it day by day, she, she let this story seep into my being and I welcomed it about the loss of her leaves and the rhythms, the cycles of life. The pertinent part for today is this, when in the fall, a leaf leaves her, drops off a twig, the cells are in place already for the next spring leaf to open up. The falling of the leaf in autumn is the genesis for the new leaf to unfold the following May. And in May, some balmy day, middle of May in, in central Alberta, when those leaves pop open and they're, and they're tender and delicate and, and fluorescent green almost, already the cells are there for that leaf to fall off come September. 
And that is an ancient way that, that new life heralds death and ending and endings and death herald new life and beginnings. They are utterly together. They are so intimate. And so our, our DNA is built out of this very way of being. Today, you and I and every other human on earth will lose tens of thousands of cells. They will die. And uh, I don't know where they go in the body, whatever. We pee them out, I suppose. <laughs> and then we are, we are at the very same moment having cells dividing by the, by the tens of thousands or millions. So we're constantly in this flow. The only thing that disrupts us, Ben, is that we have a culture that forgot this. We have amnesia. And so we're afraid of death and dying, afraid of endings. A part of that maybe is also very natural for an incarnate being to be a little leery of the ending of life as we perceive it. There are also those just this, this cultural amnesia. The work I do is in mentoring people back into a relationship where we draw on strengths that we forgot we had. And a great deal of that strength is in what Francis Weller or Thomas Atum O'Kane. That was the name I was trying to remember. And you interviewed him uh, for a podcast uh, maybe a year and a half ago. That's right. Yeah. yeah. He, he's, he's deeply meaningful to me. When, when we look at this experience of the soul outside of ourselves, the soul being really the community, these ancient ways come to the surface. And you know what? Virtual is a great way to experience that. I don't know if it's the best way. It's just a way we can do it right now. If I can use my cell phone or my computer to illuminate uh, sorrowing in some form, great. And then we let that be the channel that takes us back to those ancient deep ways, primal ways, movements that, that draw us into the reality of this. I am strong enough to bear the pain of my loss. Like here's some basic affirmations that go back to ancient ways of being. I am stronger than I realize or remember. This might be a catastrophic loss. Still, I will experience process and be deepened by this loss. I will ripen is Weller's word. My grief might be huge. My soul within me, with, within the village is bigger and brighter than my loss. Or I'm strong enough to bear the pain of my grief and all of the emotion that arises. This goes back to one of our modern day um, wisdom bearers, Brene Brown. And Brene Brown's work with the story I tell myself. If the story I tell myself is, I can't do this. I'm afraid of my grief. I'm afraid of loss and I can't, I can't bear my emotional pain, then we will sedate that pain and we will suffer. And that will become our reality. Mm. In Brene Brown's world, if we change our story, and if our story is, I, I will not avoid my pain because I am strong enough to learn from it because it is in my DNA to do this work. And because I have village and with village, even if I can't reach out and touch Ben Wilson right now, Ben Wilson is in my village and virtually my soul will connect with you. And together we will survive the loss of our time because of COVID. We will survive the loss of Marge 
of Sydney, of Amanda, and of all the ones that went before them and will come after them. It's, it's, so, um, it's so much easier to accept and to work through that process, I think, when it's, uh, when it's, when it's a death that is in the proper succession, when we're, we know to expect to bury our parents. No one ever expects to bury their child. Yeah. And so in, the, in normal times, when we're able to have a normal funeral, when, we'll, when we're able to, to, to uh, gather as a community and whatever the, the community's traditions are around ha having a wake or um, uh, whatever is meaningful for, that, for their religion, for their beliefs, uh, when all of that's disrupted and it's, a, it's someone's child, it's so much it feels so much more impossible to wrap, to accept, to wrap your mind around it. Even for those of us in the community who are not fa direct family members, I've, I've been thinking about Sydney, especially so much uh, since her death, she babysat our kids. Uh, so we, and she was part of our church community as well. And so, and theater community. So I knew her uh, quite well. And it's just to, it, seems, it just feels impossible to accept such a young person dying so suddenly when their whole life is ahead of them. Um, that, and I know that, uh, like you said, we've, humans have been dying from, since the beginning of time of all kinds of causes. And uh, infant mortality used to be way higher than it is now. And in, and in ancient times, I'm sure that it was just normal for children to die too, not just people, but, but young people. But in, I think, especially in our time, we've, that's another piece that we've kind of lost touch with, that, that all of us are vulnerable, right? That all of us are, are mortal. And so uh, the death of a young person, it just, it is so much harder to go through the processes that you're, that you're describing, I think, and to remember that you are big enough and strong enough to, um, to encompass that grief. It's catastrophic, Ben. A catastrophe means something that we experience that threatens our survival, a hurricane, an earthquake, a fire, whatever. And in the world of grief, this kind of loss is catastrophic. It does truly threaten our being. So when we have a, an external catastrophe, say uh, a hurricane, we, we realize life is precarious. And if I step out into this storm, I could be taken away. So we have to prepare ourselves and we have to realize there is risk. This is a catastrophic loss. And I, I in no way want to romanticize sorrowing with these lovely words of ancient things. Rather, I would say in these losses, there is a need to wail, to, to just to rail at the universe at something that is clearly wrong. And we need to do that privately in our own voice. We need to do it corporately. We need, to, we need to demand an accounting from whatever you call source, creator, whatever, right? We need an accounting for this. Why are our children dying? And I've had an extraordinary number of grief clients in 2020, 2021, whose children had died, adult children, uh, young adults, teenagers. All that I said before still paves the way because we will survive this. 
When a parent loses a child, they join a communion of people across the world and across time that have survived, that have deepened as a human, and that were utterly changed by that loss. Who they were as a person was fundamentally in metamorphosis changed. And they continued on in life, deepened and scarred by this. Now, I did a funeral years ago for a woman whose son died uh, in his mid-20s from a car accident. And th this woman was uh, First Nations descent. And she understood sorrow. And we had a kind of traditional Western um, sort of funeral, and she, which she was at. In the middle of it, she just started to keen and then to wail. And the, the service continued with this sound in the background of somebody whose soul was rent. And it poured into the room and it, it spoke what all of us wanted to do, but in our culture didn't know how. And then it subsided. And a little bit later in the service, I was officiating, so I was at the front. I think a song was being played with great groundedness and calm. She came up to the front and she whispered, I would like to say something about my son. And of course I said, absolutely. When the song ended, I, I gave her the podium. And then she spoke such beautiful words about her son. But she couldn't have done that without the strength that erupted out of her in her grief as a wailing. We, we don't wail in our culture. We have these quiet services where people sit serenely when in fact they hurt so bad, they hurt so deeply, an ancient, ancient wound. Our children should not die. 20,000 years ago, before we had settled into farming, human beings just like you and me, they wailed when their young ones died. This is what we need to reclaim individually and corporately. And then the ceremony and ritual that contain, that can contain that pain. Because, you know, we, we need to be the water in the river. Grief is like that, that water. If you don't have a riverbank, the water pours out across the land and causes great destruction and, and change. The riverbank simply contains the power of the river and directs it. And our rituals, our ceremony, our community create the containment for that sorrow. So it has a place to flow that, that lets the energy move and also has the possibility of life. Oh, that is so beautiful visually and just poetically. Um, what, one question that's popping up for me, Bill, is what you, and just a very practical question, which mm. is what would be your unique advice for specifically for the, the young people um, who are grieving the loss of their friend, of their sister, of their cousin, who have not experienced decades like you and I have of life and, and many, many losses and the, their own um, experiences of, of grieving in the past. Maybe they've lost a grandparent or maybe they've, I mean, everyone knows people who have, have died, who have passed away, but there's something so much more catastrophic, like you said, 
for a young person who is maybe a little bit less experienced and equipped at the grieving journey uh, for them to lose a loved one who is also so young? Sure. I'll start with uh, children under the age of 12. Our little ones grieve in spurts. It's like they're walking along and they sort of feel okay. And then a hole opens up underneath them and they drop in and that's their, their grief wave. And it's frightening, it's overwhelming. And then they pop out of it and, and then they're going and everything's okay again, right? Whereas adults, you know, we grieve, it's like we've fallen in a river and the river is deep and it's dark water and it's frightening and we don't feel like we can reach the riverbank. And it's like it all day long that, you know, children though, it's more like that other way where their being needs to engage the energy of sorrowing in small amounts, digestible amounts. So for our children, I would say, just know that when, when you feel really, really sad and anxious or afraid or lonely in your, in your grief, that that won't undo you. And it will be just for a little while. And then you'll feel different, not quite so overwhelmed. Talk with an adult in your world that you trust. And ask that adult, please just listen to me. I just need to tell you things. Please don't try to fix me. And, and to the adults around these children, for heaven's sake, please don't tell them not to cry. Please don't tell them that it's okay because they don't feel okay. Just literally bear witness to their story. Do what Ben and I do in life. Just be a story gatherer. And if they say to you that they're feeling an emotion, just let them feel it. And be the containment for that emotion so that it doesn't overflow its banks. Mm -hmm. Our little ones are way more attuned to sorrowing well than us as adults because they're, they're, they're closer, more closely connected to those ancient ways. Yeah. And so it, we just need to let them be when they need to play, let them play. And if they're overwhelmed in their sorrow, simply contain it with them. Just let, let that be a container for that sorrow to be experienced safely. We move on to our teens, our adolescents. It's just, that's a hard place to be grieving. You have a little bit of that childlike nature in you and a little bit of the adult way. Our adolescents mostly want to unpack their sorrowing with their peers. They're not so inclined to go to an adult and as a generality, some more than others, but as a generality, they're gonna to turn to their peers. And when they turn to their peers, they're not necessarily gonna know how to do this. So they do still need the containment of the adult world to hold and bear witness to this. The adult world needs to know they might disappear into their room for days. That's not necessarily a red flag. The adult world might say, I'm worried about you. Are you okay? How are you doing? You can talk to me. They might say that over and over. And the teen's going to say, I know I can talk to you. I'm fine. Which is, means, thank you for being there. Please don't push. The teens are going to work it out in great part inside of themselves. They're going to try to make meaning of this and they're not going to know what to do. My recommendation for our teens is this. Find a way to connect to your peers and do ritual. And the ritual might be as simple as there is a memorial set up somewhere and I can leave a flower or a note or, or anything because we need something physical, right? So even with COVID and all this stuff, we still do need some place where we can go physically. Like in Bashaw, as an example, 
there almost needs to be a place in the village of Bashaw or the town of Bashaw where the public can literally just drop a flower there. And somebody at some point appropriately will come and clean that up later. But we see that in the world when somebody well-known dies and you end up with a fence somewhere just covered in flowers yeah. and notes and things, right? Yeah. That's really important. That's old. Because in, in our earlier times, our ancestral times, we gathered in our little village around the fire and we brought with us um, food to share. We bought, brought mementos that were memories of that individual. Um, we stood vigil with a fire as that body burned, right, in older times. And some 24-7, somebody stayed vigil for days and days. So our teens need that. They need a place to go where I can leave something. I don't have to be with other people during COVID when I do this, but I could go there and drop off something. Hmm. Or that they, they take something to the house of a survivor, right? Sydney's parents or, or other family members. A part of this is, could I just bring you something I made? I'll leave it at the porch for you. So we need, we need physical, practical things. Mm. A, we need containment um, from the adult world. And that mostly means a gentle support without judgment, without trying to fix the person. Because our sorrow, it's not an illness, Ben. It's not a psychological condition. It's in our DNA. It's who we are. It is the leaf falling and the leaf unfolding over and over and over. And this is our life. So we're not trying to fix our teens or our children. We're trying to be with them in a way that lets them know they're strong enough to hurt. And they will grow from this. And this hurt's going to be great and mighty. And it will, it will utterly fracture them. And then they will be rebuilt. Yeah, I think we, we, especially our young people, we want to save them from that pain and that hurt. We do. We, right. it's, it's fixing, but it's also like rescuing, right? We want to, we, we just want to help them avoid it and not have to go through it. Uh, we want to bypass the, yeah. the really difficult parts and build this little nice, clean, neat bridge over the river instead of wading through it. Um, for, as a follow-up question, Bill, what would you offer to community members who are maybe one link removed from the epicenter of that blast where our care is more for the survivors, for the family. We, we maybe know of um, the, the person who had passed away. We know their mom or we, we know their dad or we just mm -hmm. know the family. And as a community, we're, we're saddened because no one should have to, um, to grieve the loss of their child or a young person, especially, or any loss. And, and we wanna show care, but we're in COVID times and where we would normally you know, make a casserole and drop it off, maybe we can still do that. Maybe we don't feel comfortable doing that. Maybe we're not sure if they'll feel comfortable receiving that, or we can't just go through that, that funeral um, experience where hundreds of people all offer their condolences on the same day and then it's done. And, and then when you see that person on Main Street the next week, you know and they know that you've already had that moment where you've given them a hug or shaken, shook their hand and, and offered your sympathies. And so that process has changed now. It's, it's kind of smeared and spread out over, over months mm -hmm. of, of bumping into people with masks on and, and not able to hug. And there's an uneasiness, I think, for some people or a, 
an unsureness of how to be and how to behave and what to say or when to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just wondering if you have advice. I know that over sure, this last a, year, a you must have dealt things. with this a lot. Sure. Well, bake casseroles, <laughs> bake, <laughs> bake um, uh, sourdough bread, bake whatever, make, make food, drop it off. If, yeah. if they get too much, they'll pass it on to another person that needs some. Um, it's a beautiful gift. It's an incredible thing. That's ancient. And that's worthy of doing that's and those are ancient movements for our bodies to do is to cook and to provide food for each other in the village mm-hmm. so um i would say do that if they get overwhelmed with it great uh, they they will fill their freezers they'll eat them and every bite will be a reminder they are loved and cared for yeah. um a couple of things that aren't helpful is when we see them on the street and we say um yeah, geez, I heard about Sydney. And, you know, how, how are you doing? How, like, what does it feel like? How are you? There is a, th- a thing I have experienced personally of, of late, actually, that I hadn't had words for. And now my wife and I do have words for it. Compassion, reception, fatigue. The receiving of compassion. And we, we can get worn out. Because every time somebody says, oh, how are you doing? It takes us back into the energy of our loss. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's just so exhausting. And so we, it can get to the point where a person doesn't want to go out on the street, especially in a small town, because they don't want somebody to ask them one more time, how are you doing? Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not bad. It's just the reality is it can be exhausting to be the recipient of care. And so in order to actually contain, be, be a container as a community for the loss of the primary people in this story, we need to have words that are gentle and, and will not um, cause a person to put up a wall. And it could be something like this. Let's say it's you, Ben, and I see you on the street. I could just say, hey, Ben, I want you to know I care about you. And that's all, right? And Ben says, thanks. And I keep walking. And Ben receives that without a cost to him. And that's huge in our grief world. Ben, I just want you to know I care about you. When you go to the door of somebody's house and you don't know what to say, just say, I care about you. Wow. Um, You're not trying to poke intentionally or unintentionally this great big energy of of grieving in me. You're just actually giving me a container. I care about you. We could have a thousand people walk by that and say, I care about you. And all we have to do is close our eyes and feel that energy wrap around us and soothe that, that oh so painful part of us. So you could phone somebody up and say, hey, Ben, just wanting to say, I care about you. And they're going to say, thank you. Mm-hmm. And maybe a little bit of silence. And I'll just say, yep, yeah, just that's all. I'm with you in this day. Okay, thanks. Bye. When you drop something off at the door, same thing. I care about you. See, that's so not too hard for a human to say, even no. in COVID. It, yeah, it's so true. And it is so easy. Uh, I've, I also, um, it makes me think of another piece of advice that I've heard uh, about grieving. And that is that uh, some people will sometimes, I think, assume that they shouldn't mention the person who has died. Yeah, I've heard that. Especially for parents, they, they want to uh, 
to hear the stories back to back to sharing stories right they want to hear so the, the stories of what that person meant to their friends or to people in the community who knew that person um and maybe maybe that's different right in the beginning uh maybe that is a like you're uh, speaking of a, a reminder that brings them back into that pain um i don't know when that is appropriate or, or how you know when it's yeah. helpful versus uh too difficult to say oh i you know i i loved this about um your daughter or i love this about your mom um this is what i remember i'd i'd, I'd lean on the side of of error on that or err err on the side of 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 of, of risking of because yeah. yeah you're it's really true the sound of our loved one's name is is sweet to us because it, what it does is it affirms that they are still a part of the village. Like all that's happened, and it depends on one's own spiritual beliefs, etc. But it's possible for me, for instance, with my dad who died um, four years ago, I think now coming up. My dad is very close to me in my heart, like here. And when I tell stories of my dad, I... I bring him back into membership. It's called remembering to bring back into membership or to collect back to me as I recollect him, recollect. So I don't think I would be too concerned about um, saying, I sure miss Sydney. And she was just such a beautiful person. And saying that to one of her, one of her loved ones. Because the name Sydney is going to be sweet to them. It's going to be bittersweet for a long time but still that sweetness is there. We need to hear the name of our loved one. And let's just say we, we can be sensitive about it all, yeah. but I'd, 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 I'd err on the side of say the name yeah. because there's something so beautiful about it. And I, I think it also communicates that um, not only did that, did that person's life have an impact, but the the loss of that person's life has had an impact as well it doesn't it's it we're not just carrying on unfazed by this tragedy or by this loss or by the death i remember the the, the first death that i was devastated by was my my grandpa dying and i was a teenager and i was offended that people could carry on their day how can the world be turning how can people continue just how can someone just eat lunch, like do a normal human thing, like eating lunch or, or just talking about the weather when this person who was so core to my being has left, is gone. And I just remember as a 16 year old being, thinking that everyone should be as devastated as I am right now. Of course, that's yeah. the typical teenage worldview that everything revolves around me, right? It's, it, he was so important to me, he must be equally important to everyone. But I, I, I still think as an adult now that um, we, we have ways of signaling that we have been impacted and that that loss, it, it did mean something and that person mm -hmm. missed. And maybe I'm not um, cracked wide open to the core in the same way that you are as the, as the family member, but I want you to know that, that I've been impacted and that I've, I've, I'm thinking about you. Back to your your suggestion of just I, I want you to know I care about you. There's, yeah. We each have our own ways of expressing that, I guess, and of holding that space. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's 
all of that is really good advice. I, I want to be mindful of our time and maybe we've got a, a few more minutes here, Bill. Um, but what else would you like to add to this conversation just about how this process of grieving as communities, as families and individuals has is so uniquely different now and how we can we can journey? Because we're not gathering, we need to find ways of still acknowledging our connection to each other. My, my previous comments, like if there's a place somewhere in the town where a flower can be dropped, right? You know, as an example, um, we, we have great use of phones and phone calls are gonna be really important as we move forward, that connecting with our village in some way. The danger, the real red flag is disconnection. If because of COVID and its restrictions, we are experiencing disconnection. Sorrow as a transformative experience falters. I would say in most cases, sorrow is actual, actually a communal experience, just like Francis Weller's idea of soul. So whatever we do, if we are finding ourselves utterly withdrawn or cut off from our connections, that, that, that's hard for us, that's deeply hard. So however we do it, whether we're texting, whether we're phoning or getting on Zoom with people, even if it's outside, it's out, might be outside and socially distanced and just saying, Jesus, good to see you, I haven't seen you physically for you know, weeks or months. And I just wanted to chat with you about how things are, right? That, that connection is really important for us. Mm -hmm. So I would say in our grief work, personally, not to say there isn't a time in our, in our grief metamorphosis when we are very cocooned. That's a, a separate piece from this. I just mean socially. Be aware of, of the need for that connection, uh, as, um, all the more so during these COVID days. And however we can do that safely, employ it. Yeah. And people will continue to be resourceful and innovative mm -hmm. and creative. Um, you know, that famous saying that necessity is the mother of invention. And we've seen so many examples of that in terms of how small businesses have found a way to carry on and keep going, how our churches and nonprofits and charities have found ways to um, to carry on their work and to fundraise, even though they don't have the opportunity to do what they would maybe normally do. Um, our church, we've been we've pivoted to online stream live, live streaming our services as uh, we've been streaming for years, but uh, to uh, only online services this last year. And and so I, we I know that we're so capable of coming up with ways that um, that we'd never maybe would have thought of before until we had to. You know, that this uh, experience my wife and I had this the last four months uh, where we had received some sad news was that our village would just randomly drop something off on the porch might be food or a bottle of wine or, you know, various things, just, just statements that said, despite COVID, you are not alone. So I would highlight that just if the village of Balfour, 
just if everybody just ran around and just just dropped a note off a card in the mailbox of each other they would be reminded we are here we are surviving we are connected we are not alone uh, that would be a spectacular newsworthy event to it see would. a village where everybody just are, are just every day just going out to their neighbor and just dropping something off of the door that says hey you are yeah. you are held in thought and prayer and uh, I'm physically here just across the street. Yeah. I think I, sometimes I'm uh, of the mind that we have a unique advantage in being such a small community where we're a little bit closer to our history mm-hmm. of, of operating as small communities, of you know gathering around a fire where everyone is present because the community is so small that it's practically uh, possible to do that. We're in a city of a million people or 10 million right. people. You can feel ironically so alone and disconnected from those other millions of people that we're very blessed in, in some ways to live in such a small community where we know our neighbors, uh, we know that they're there, we know we're not alone. But those acts, those physical acts, those motions that you talk about um, are such visceral, powerful ways of bringing that home, of re- of experiencing it, of knowing it in our, in our flesh, not knowing it just in our mind that, oh yeah, I know my neighbors are in their house across the road. But when you don't see them, when you go months of not seeing someone, yeah, I think the, your mind and, and your, and your subconscious and your soul level, it, it's not, we're not used to that, that, that level of, of isolation and separateness that we're experiencing in, uh, during these times. Well, it's, there are such unique challenges uh, in these days, and uh, I'm so grateful for your wisdom and your advice and your stories, Bill, and and your willingness to generously share them. And I know that it's going to really, I think, lift people up and give them um, some fresh ideas to consider and some some practical advice and just some some reassurance and... uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for that. A pleasure to share this space with you again. <clears throat> and, and thank you for continuing this work through this last year. And you were sharing with me before we started um, the number of episodes that you've generated. And yeah, what a wonderful gift to the community, to the village of, of this podcast and, and your personal village. Thank you for your work. And especially for a curiosity about this topic and that you have. And consequently, we slowly erode the last couple hundred years of resistance <laughs> to what is really deeply embedded in us. Yeah. So um, I'm glad to be a collaborator with you in this work. Thank you, Bill. I, I really appreciate that. It is, it is a, a genuine curiosity that comes from my own wrestling and struggling with my own mortality and the mortality of my loved ones like as we all have to grapple with so i i yeah i likewise i'm really appreciative to have um, a connection to you that i can learn uh learn from you and and keep moving down down that path um do you have any uh resources that you would like to recommend to listeners at, at at the close of this conversation or 
favorite books? I know you mentioned Francis Weller, um, an author, uh, a couple of times. Uh, maybe a favorite book of his, or just other resources online that people can can check out, whether they are in Camrose in your community or Basha or anywhere else. Sure. Uh, in terms of Francis Weller, his book, um, The Wild Edge of Sorrow which is sort of his foundational work. And it's, it's wonderfully narrative and rich. And also Robert Romanishan and his book, The Soul in Grief. Robert is a psychotherapist in the States. His wife dropped dead in front of him at a age, early forties. They were just chatting and she, I don't know, she had an aneurysm or something. She just said, oh, and dropped dead. And the book is this beautiful exploration of sorrow in the richest sense. So the um, the soul in grief is another good one. A great website is um, mygrief.com. I think it's, that's what, let me just check, double check quick. Um, well, you're pulling that up, Bill. I know that um, the camp, the, uh, in, it, at the Hospice Society of Camrose, that there are a lot of opportunities uh, to support their work, um, maybe not through as many uh, volunteering opportunities right now as there would normally be, but I know they're always uh, in pre-COVID had always been looking for volunteers and also have resources and links on on your website there. Yeah, cameroshospice.org is ours. Uh, sorry, it's the one I was alluding to is what's your grief whatsyourgrief.com whatsyourgrief.com and that is an, a huge compendium uh, almost anything you're looking for in the grief world and really excellent resources so uh, that's if you just want to go to one site whatsyourgrief.com is a go-to great yeah there's real power in connecting with um, that online village of people who mm -hmm. are sharing the grief experience and can, can uh, so support each other um, as well so uh, lots here to digest. I, I, I've got lots that I'm going to be thinking about, I'm sure, through the day and, and days to come from this conversation. I hope we get a chance to do this again, Bill. Um, thank you again for your time this morning, your wisdom and your care uh, and your love for our community and what we're going through right now, especially uh, your support means a great deal to a lot of people. So thank Thanks, you again ben. for your work. Yeah, For you and for our listeners. May your path be suffused with wellness in the midst of what you walk through. That's beautiful. Well, we'll leave it there, folks. Um, thank you for joining myself and Bill today. And if you haven't already heard uh, the other episodes that we uh, shared with Bill uh, in the past, we'll provide links to those two episodes. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this podcast with uh, other people in your life that you think might get something from them. And we hope you join us again sometime soon. Until then, take care and be well.